In the pre-internet fact-check days, any goofball in a gi could tell a wild story and end up in a martial arts magazine. But were they ninjas or nincompoops? Is it karate or is it kayfabe? We look at the days when martial arts was pro-wrestling and our favorite movie, Bloodsport. Crazy territory stories, double-crosses, and swerves. Pro-wrestling history nerds. Holy crap, holy gosh, oh my lord, however you want to put it, this is Nick Gossard, and we are back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds, and good god damn it, this is going to be a fun one. And as always, I'm here with the Burt Ward to my Adam West, it's Chongo Bronson, how the fuck are you, man? Holy Kung Fu movie from 1992, Batman, I brought my nunchucks that I ordered out of the back of Black Belt, Black Belt magazine with my Bruce Lee, uh non-classical wing chung gung fu button down monk kung fu cool thing and i'm ready for the show and i think everybody's gonna be ready for this show because we're doing something a little different you know where we we are talking about pro wrestling but in a weird way because today we're going to talk about the movie blood sport and we're going to talk about how sometimes martial arts can be pro wrestling. And if that doesn't make a lot of sense right now, wait 45 minutes to an hour and it'll be crystal goddamn clear. So let's kind of get the basics out of the way because what we do on this show is we go back in the rich, deep history of pro wrestling, the connections of pro wrestling to martial arts, mixed martial arts, it's all kissing cousins. It's all weird storytelling, and we are all about it. And you are going to listen to this. And if you're an expert on some of the crazy stuff we're going to talk about, you're going to say, hey, guys, I think I heard the story this way. Or what the shit? I know it happened this way. Or what about this crazy thing? You didn't even mention it. Well, you know what? We're putting the best story we can together from all the sources we can. And sometimes, you know, we have to keep this, uh, this show within an hour. So... We have to cut stuff out. It doesn't always make the cut. I wish we could talk about it for three, four hours like Dan Carlin on Hardcore History, but nobody likes the sound of my voice that much, not even myself, and I love the sound of my voice. Yes, the bottom line is it's a theatrical application of combat to elicit attention and money and to tell a story, and that is where the the road meets the rubber, as they say. That's where blood sport is one of the greatest examples of a work. And that's the movie we're gonna be talking about. We're gonna be talking about the Jean-Claude Van Damme classic, Bloodsport. This is the movie that any martial arts kid in America in the 90s, maybe even the 2000s, beyond, maybe forever, I don't know a single kid who watched that movie and didn't go to his parents wanting to sign up for karate, kung fu, ninjutsu, taekwondo. Well, I guess taekwondo is more of a daycare thing, to be honest. But, you know, everybody wanted to throw punches. Everybody wanted to do the splits and punch somebody in the balls after this. Everybody wanted to stand on a platform and fight for glory and cash and uh, some sweet Stan Bush rock and roll. Yes, and Bloodsport was the iconic martial arts movie of my childhood. I mean, it's the reason that this week I turned 39 years old and I can still do the splits in both directions only with the left leg forward because I usually throw the head kick with the left old chap. So the left leg forward when I go forward and forward and back and then side to side, I can still almost get all the way down. That is a direct repercussion of the fandom of Jean-Claude Van Damme from this movie as a nine-year-old kid when this came out. 
And it's crazy to think about this movie being as iconic, as important, and production-wise as amazing as it is, because this was a canon movie in 1988. And those of you who are unfamiliar with canon films, uh, they were a B-movie production company known for, you know, cheap as heck, but always fun, bad action movies, including many early Van Damme films, Stallone films, Dolph Lundgren films, late Charles Bronson movies, and of course, the Michael Dudikoff classic, American Ninja. All of the, the great pantheon of American bullshito martial arts movies of the late 80s and early 90s. The, the theme that makes it so incredible and made it so believably presentable at that time was, we're talking pre-UFC, pre-internet. And those two variables allowed for a wild west of bullshit martial arts to get really far in the narrative of what could actually work in a fight. And we're going to break some of that down because it is awesome. Yeah, especially when you have some of the people involved, like Jean-Claude Van Damme, who wasn't a movie star at this point. He had just come off of a bunch of small roles. Uh, he was the, you know, Ivan the Russian in the underrated because it's terrible, but fucking fantastic. Uh, no retreat, no surrender. This Amazing. was somebody taking a chance on this, you know, charismatic, muscly Belgian fella. Um, so nobody really had invested in this guy until this point. He wasn't worth investing in until this point. And the rest of the cast, you know, we have Bolo Young, uh, a Chinese uh, kung fu movie legend going back to the 70s, but he really wasn't known in American audiences until this point. You had Donald Gibb, the, uh, you know, ogre from Revenge of the Nerds, <laughs> playing Jackson, the tough American, who goes in against these, like, martial arts ma you know, masters, and he's, like, just this big, kind of goofy, but super character charismatic uh, guy who's like running and doing like double axe handles to foreheads to knock people down. The sort of shit in the fight choreography world, you'd be like, what the hell are they even trying to do? Clearly he, you know, they weren't going to teach him how to do a jump spinning hook kick in the six weeks of pre-production, but he still pulls it off. You still root for the guy because he's just so charismatic. They cast everything perfectly. You had guys like, uh, Paulo Tocha, a South African Muay Thai fighter, and he was one of the first Westerners to train and fight in Thailand. He was a legitimately important martial artist because this wasn't a movie where they taught actors martial arts. They took martial arts you know, professionals and stars and went, we'll just hope you can act good enough to get through your one scene. Some did, some didn't, but it's still fantastic because you're not expecting a lot when it comes to delivering dialogue and emotion. But good God, is this movie fantastic. And again, it was just lightning in a bottle because it was directed by Newt Arnold, who only directed three movies, but was assistant director of dozens of films, everything from Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 to Godfather Part 2. So this was just a bunch of cheaply put together people with a crazy dream, a set of standards that you wouldn't have expected for a movie of this budget, and they put in a movie that is still discussed as one of the best martial arts movies of all time to this day. Yeah, and so many tropes in the martial arts genre of the current era came out of this movie. Bolo was presented to the American public as probably the greatest martial arts heel of that era. He was the, the biggest heel for Bruce Lee in Enter the Dragon. He was 
such an iconic character and for him to get this chance. And he this wasn't the only Van Damme movie where he was the the mastermind heel. He was also what double impact. You remember yeah, that the one? one where he had the uh, you know the dead eye and the scar. You know, so he he was a very well used actor in American martial arts B movies after this. He like I said, he'd been a Shaw Brothers staple over in uh, Hong Kong for years, but this movie cemented him as an international icon, a great bad guy, even though he quite often played a good guy back home, but he just had a menace, a, you know, a menacing charm that just, you know, he, he just, he just did everything perfectly while delivering almost no dialogue. And they made this work very well. Cause I think that guy's like five foot six, but they made him look seven feet tall. Cinema is lies. Yes. And it doesn't hurt when your opponent is also five foot six. You know, and then they've got the upper upper rims on the mat. You know, it was a really, really well done movie considering the the parameters that they had to work with. But it it really was a masterpiece in its own glorious dumpster fire way. And we love this movie, man. And the history of martial arts tournament movies didn't start here. You know, you can go back to movies like Enter the Dragon was based around a tournament. Uh, Five Fingers of Death was Built, built around a tournament. So many movies were built around the martial arts tournament. Uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine, another one. But almost to a T, the tournament took a backseat to whatever intrigue, quest for vengeance, uh, political agenda the, the characters had. This was one of the first real movies where the focus was on the tournament built all the way up until the, uh, the, the finals, where the emotional payoff was the finals of the tournament. And it had everything you would want in a crazy story. You have exotic locations, wild fighting styles, and crazy characters that sometimes borderlined on racist stereotypes, a strong baby face, and a malevolent heel, gimmick matches, drama, violence, and manufactured emotional reaction to a predetermined, obvious outcome. It's martial arts as pro wrestling at its finest. Absolutely, clearly defined heels and faces. Very, very, like you said, almost stereotypical side characters to round out the roster and the members of the tournament and each of the different fighting styles. You've got, you know, everything from the American, you know, one-eyed ogre pro wrestler style hacksaw Jim Duggan to the, you know, spinning capoeira kicking guy from Africa that you don't, moves like an animal. And it was presented that way. And, and again, I just have to emphasize this is pre-internet, pre-UFC. So there was no way to disprove what was bullshit. So all of it looked legit. And it's important to talk about pre-UFC and pre-internet because that's going to be very much the theme of what we're talking about today. Because martial arts, like pro wrestling back in the day, was completely built upon how well you could talk, how well you could sell your story, how well you could sell your bullshit while doing very questionable things. And back in those days, there were there was no internet. You couldn't look up things to see who was lying about their 500 challenge matches. You couldn't convince a karate guy to fight a judo guy to fight a sumo wrestler to really prove what was the best way to fight. That was before all this. So everything was mythology. Everything in a way was pro wrestling, especially when we get to the end of this goddamn movie, when the movie ends and the credits start. And before the proper credits, we see this. This motion picture is based upon true events in the life of Frank W. Dukes. 
From 1975 to 1980, Frank W. Dukes fought 329 matches. He retired undefeated as the world heavyweight full contact Kumite champion. Mr. Duke still holds four world records. Fastest knockout, 3.2 seconds. Fastest punch with a knockout, 0.42 seconds. Fastest kick with a knockout, 72 miles per hour. And most consecutive knockouts in a single tournament, 56. Subsequently, Mr. Dukes founded the first American ninjutsu system, Ducks Roo. And we're going to go back to this a little bit later to kind of go over the details and kind of ask a few important questions. But it did posit this crazy story as real life. And I feel like that was even more important for tricking all of us kids into going, holy shit, I got to get my parents to let me sign up for karate classes so I too can fly to exotic locations and fight in front of gangsters. Like we, as a child, we had such dumb ideas and I feel sad that the world crushed those out of us. Well, speak for yourself, old chap. I still take regular sabbaticals into the woods to train for the upcoming Kumite that someday the mythical ship will appear in the harbor and take me to the island tournament. But before we get into all that, first we really need to look at the rise of martial arts as bullshit mythology. From post-war exposure to Asian martial arts, Chinese kung fu movies being imported to American cinemas, Eastern mysticism being uh, you know, imported as well, and the commercial potential of teaching martial arts as self-defense and personal growth for people in the suburbs. This quickly became a feeding frenzy of con artists and lunatics taking advantage of the marks. The pre-internet era meant that fact-checking was next to impossible, so the crazy claims by martial artists often went unchallenged. The overall cultural impressions were mostly informed by movies and TV, with mythical monks living in remote locations, training hand-picked students to be unstoppable killing machines. The more remote and exotic the place, the more dangerous the fighting art, of course. Iron Palm, Dim Mac, punches that can rupture your organs, no-touch energy attacks. All bullshit, but often believed back then. Before the UFC, there was no real cross-discipline challenges, so everyone could claim their techniques are simply too deadly to properly demonstrate, and without the internet to verify anything, it was hard to challenge their claims. Many instructors left Japan as blue belts and arrived in America as black belts. Many black belts became 10th degree black belts, karate men bought black geese, and rebranded themselves as ninjas as movies like Enter the Ninja grew in popularity, and undefeated in 500 no-holds-barred fights to the death was hard to argue against, especially since a challenge to fight to the death was typically the response to criticism. Yeah, it's hard to uh, prove a guy's technique is bullshit when he has the trump card of being able to say it's a lethal technique, so I can't do it for real. So you can't test it for real without killing the guy. So it kind of made a perfect out. And, and it was great for that in terms of a worker always needs an out. And that was there. It was it was beautifully done because at the end of the day, again, they're using the martial art. They're using the combat for a story, for a profit. And it's, a, you know, that's the definition of being a worker. Yeah, we can very much connect this behavior once again to the carnival coming to down. You set up your uh, tent and you just spouse off as much insane bullshit as you can. You do fake demonstrations because it's all about raking in the money and heading off to the next town. Or in this case, it's more of a prolonged long con where you're getting people to sign their two-year contracts, 
filling their heads with bullshit, looking like an absolute god to them, and then cashing their checks until, you know, pretty much forever. You can be able to retire off of that. And once again, you can't really fight against a claim of, oh, I uh, learned ninjutsu from Master uh, Doug, who lives on the highest mountain in Indonesia. Yes, there are Indonesian ninjas. Call me a liar. I dare you. I will. I am the knight. You know, it's it's like the, you know, these, these claims became crazier and crazier. You know, we got this idea from movies that the more exotic a martial art was, the more dangerous it was. Because in Kung Fu movies, for our Kung Fu aficionados, we know that you know, the, the the hero always has to find the monk, the temple that's like up on the highest mountain and they turn him away 50 times and then they put him through the craziest, most bizarre training to learn, you know, drunken style or, you know, uh, swan style or whatever thing they need to learn to defeat the final boss. And that's how we kind of got these ideas that really didn't get dispelled according to, you know, Panther production VHS uh, sales numbers until the UFC blew a lot of that away. But a lot of people made a lot of money on bullshit. And, you know, we always, as we kind of talk about this, I'm not judging them. I'm just sad I missed that boat. Well, there's also the element of like that collective hypnosis of the zeitgeist, right? There's almost a cult-like element when you talk about these martial art uh, schools and followings that these guys would get, especially like you see some of it now with the, the internet bullshit that comes out with like the energy touch guys where these guys, I think to some degree, these students really have given themselves the belief that, that their sensei is doing this to them. Oh, absolutely. There is very little difference psychologically between a martial arts student buying into a bunch of crazy, no touch knockout, whatever energy stuff, and somebody being convinced they are speaking in tongues and being knocked out by the Holy Spirit in a you know Pentecostal church somewhere. It's all internal psychology. So that's why when you see the uh, you know the the, the boxer, or the jujitsu man, or whatever shows up and challenges the energy touch guy. And then he does it to all the students, they fall down. And then they try doing it to the boxer or sometimes the reporter and then goes, oh, well, you know, your chi is aligned this way. And that's why I wasn't able to knock you down because you got to keep the bullshit train running. You can't just go, all right, you got me. Yeah, it's and it, but it's interesting because I really don't think that a lot of the students want it to not be true, right? They don't want to have committed and trained and believed for years in this martial arts system and in this instructor to find out that it's all just garbage, right? So on some level, they're, they're having that response. It's really interesting, the psychology of that. Oh, absolutely, because it's not just about fighting. Uh, with the spiritual angle, martial arts was marketed as a solution to all of life's internal problems as well, and thus attracted the easily influenced goofballs that had previously joined, you know, cults, had, uh, you know, fallen in with like, you know, weird yogis that came over from India, kind of a similar thing where anybody with a robe who could do downward facing dog came to the United States in the 70s opened up some sort of a Bikram thing and fleeced everybody for months and months, if not years and years. And these are the sort of people who now would have been swept up in an anti-vax yoga Facebook group. <laughs> All these things created the perfect storm for insane bullshit and charismatic weirdos trying to make money on it. And isn't that pro wrestling? Yeah, I mean, what a better description can you give for pro wrestling? And, and that's exactly what Bloodsport did to the greatest degree in my life 
as a, as a lifelong, if I was to say my stock and trade is anything as a profession, I'm a professional martial artist. That translates into my different work in fighting and wrestling and security. Those are all professional elements of dedicating your life to studying martial arts. I've done that, you've done that. And this movie was really instrumental in like putting me on the path that I, that my life went on. Man. Oh, absolutely. I know, I know so many martial artists, so many fighters, so many pro wrestlers who cite Bloodsport as the inspiration because it wasn't just the choreography, even though the choreography is amazing. It wasn't just the Stan Bush rock and roll soundtrack, even though that is tight as hell. There's so many elements to this movie, so many elements to this story uh, that just tie it all together and create something that, you know, even when you know it's bullshit later on, you still go watch it and you feel the feels, you think the thoughts, you love what you love. But there were people during all this time who, you know, like we were talking about the energy uh, goofballs, get high on their own supply. They get high on their own bullshit. Uh, because around this time, you know, well before, you know, back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, as martial arts became more prevalent in the United States, you started seeing maniacs like Count Dante. Count Dante <laughs> is very much a good precursor to people like Frank Dukes and various other people like that. Like Count Dante, Count Dante was born John Timothy Keene to a Chicago family of Irish descent, but later changed his name to Count Juan Dante, claiming his family was royalty that fled Spain during the Spanish Revolution. He got his black belt in karate in the 50s and promoted early full contact karate tournaments in Chicago. But then things got weird. He soon claimed to have created his own, far more dangerous version of karate, the Dim Mac, and boasted of winning secret death matches in China and Thailand where martial artists fight to the death in front of huge crowds. He is primarily remembered for the ads for his Black Dragon Fighting Society karate seen in comic books. They would have a picture of him looking ferocious with a text. Yes, this is the deadliest and most terrifying fighting art known to man, and without equal, it's maiming, mutilating, disfiguring, paralyzing, and crippling techniques are known by only a few people in the world. An expert at Dim Mac could easily kill many judo, karate, kung fu, aikido, and gung fu experts at one time with only fingertip pressure using his murderous poison hand weapons. Instructing you step by step through each move in this manual is none other than Count Dante, the deadliest man who ever lived. Well, take my money. That is a hell of a promo. I am sold. I am my, my jujitsu belts and my career accomplishments are for naught, for I have squandered my journey as a martial artist for not dedicating my life to the path of Count Dante's teachings. And this guy did gain students. He did gain followers. And this is one of those things when I first hear this, I always love the, it was a, he, he competed in death matches where it was fight to the death. I'm like, who the fuck signs up for that? What was, was there a cash prize? Was it a, a golden bowl? Like what the fuck are they dropping off where it's like, okay, uh, you know, 20, 20, where do you drop? Like, you know, if we'll say it was like a 16 man tournament. Where are they dumping the corpses? Who the fuck yeah, signing up yeah. for this? Who are the opponents? Did, did you ever say sorry to the families? I want answers. Yeah, totally. If 15 guys died, one winner for a 16 man tournament to the death. You had to kill three guys to get to the finals. I just like the idea of some people seeing that and then later they're just driving back in silence. They're like, I don't feel good about what we just watched. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like the audience left after the second match <laughs> the tournament continued. 
And he's also remembered for the Dojo Wars, where the Black Dragon gang, they would storm into other karate schools and attack people, which at one point resulted in the death of a friend of his and Dante nearly going to jail. But Jesus fucking Christ, like this is a guy who created a pro wrestling character and attempted to live as that character in real life. There are stories about this guy like daring people to try to shoot him so he could snatch the bullet out of midair. At some point, like many pro wrestlers, he started living the gimmick a little too hard. He uh, started becoming, uh, you know, Hogan in the late 90s, where the real guy just kind of disappeared into the character with disastrous results. But that is so amazing. I, uh, you know, I wish that... We had more guys, more more stuff like this right now. See, we lived in a cool time growing up as kids because you could read the back of a Black Belt magazine or a comic book and see an ad that we, by today's standards, understand is completely preposterous, but it was 100% believable as a kid, man. Oh, yeah, because you could, you know, buy your, you know, no-touch knockout, uh, you know, VHS tapes out of Black Belt magazine from Panther totally. Production. You could get your <laughs> your book about it. And, you know, always remember this, this goofball um, who was like a friend of a friend that I trained with. And he would come over because he always wanted to train with us because we were like wrestling. We were doing, and I, you know what? I was barely better, but only because of the direction I was going in. I had my, I think it was like a, the 10, the 10 tape set of Henzo Gracie Brazilian Jiu Jitsu because there was no Jiu Jitsu schools in Colorado back in the early nineties. So we were just like teaching ourselves grappling in my parents' basement. And this guy would come over and he would try, he would do these like trying to like finger poke us uh, thinking that like that was like gonna do something, and at like one point I remember I had this kid mounted, and he was like reaching around and like trying to like put his fingers in my shoulder blades because I guess that was like pressure point to make your spleen fail. <laughs> but much like the people we're talking about, the beatings he took time after time never really made him change his mind because he refused to like do it because he's like, no man, I don't want to really hurt you. Like if I if I really hit that pressure point, it could make your it, it could make your, you know, you poop your pants for the rest of your life or like ruin your heart. <laughs> like he he legitimately like thought these things worked. No matter how many times we were just taking them down, mount, sub, immediately, but he never would like either take the risk to defend himself or learn that what he thought was real wasn't. Well, the very... It's still real to me. Yeah, the worst absolute possible thing about that is not those ass kickings. It's not that he went past the point of no return to never admit to himself it was bullshit. It's imagine the moment when he actually is in a situation where he gives himself permission to take it to 10. I will use the fatal technique right now. I'm gonna drop this guy because this is a life or death situation and I'm really gonna kill this guy. And it doesn't work. <laughs> that sucks. And imagine this isn't a self-defense situation. Imagine this is when he turns to crime and is trying to mug somebody with his pressure point techniques. Oh, then it, <laughs> Give me your wallet, finger tap to collarbone. What are you doing, dude? I'm trying to... Uh, hey, can I just have your wallet? Come on. <laughs> right, look, buddy. Yeah, yeah, I don't want your, your free five-minute massage. Take, take, your, take your acupressure finger hand elsewhere. Death by Shatsu. Uh, <laughs> but pre-internet tall tales reached their absolute cultural zenith in the November 1980 issue of Black Belt magazine, featuring the article, The Kumite, A Learning Experience, in which Frank Dukes told his story. Dukes had previously published minor content in 
uh, black belt and other martial arts publications, but with no mention of the Kumite or being a super spy or a ninja, he was just listed as a Taekwondo black belt. Now he was back, claiming to be a ninjutsu master trained by Zenzo Tiger Tanaka, who has never been verified as an actual person, and I'm sure it's purely coincidental that Tiger Tanaka is also the name of a Japanese spy in the James Bond 1967 movie, You Only Live Twice. Well, clearly the spy in the movie was named after the esteemed Grand Master, Tiger Tanaka. Obviously, this is a man who is so mythically above the standards of us mortals that he, there was no paper trail. Of course, he didn't have, like, you know, identification. That's, a, that's for us regular people. <laughs> and in this article, he told the story of the Kumite, a top-secret martial arts tournament held every five years, and how he won the tournament in the Caribbean. The story was outlandish, with obvious influence from Count Dante, Pulp Adventure Stories, and Enter the Dragon, where... In Enter the Dragon, where the tournament is held every three years, where the top martial arts are all brought together to fight on, on Han's Island. The influences are there. The story is fucking bananas. Um, and it's also about this time. He also was claiming to be a decorated Vietnam vet with ties to the CIA. It was a lot easier to be full of shit before the internet. Because even though Black Belt posted a disclaimer about how this story isn't verified, but despite that, the story gained plenty of followers, and that led to fame and Hollywood contacts, and that led to the movie Bloodsport. And, you know, Bloodsport is about, you know, a kid who for some reason has a French accent and can't act worth a shit, who meets the Japanese neighbors as he was breaking into his house for some reason, and he takes him on as a trainee to like pretty much like it kind of felt like he was being raised as his, you know, the 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 uh, the, the sensei's uh, son's punching bag sparring partner. Like it didn't feel like there's any equality there. But then the son dies, and so he starts training Frank Dukes full time. Who now in these training montages, even though apparently he'd been training with this guy since childhood, can't defend a single fucking basic punch and is like starting from scratch with a montage with awesome Stan Bush music playing in the background, and then. Because the son was not able to go to the Kumite, he was sent in the place. So he goes to Hong Kong, where it's a, a seedy situation where he is going to be you know, fighting in this international tournament in front of you know, mostly triad gangsters, because nobody from the outside world is allowed to the, be on the inside. And he had gone AWOL from the military, where he was top-notch intelligence. And then agents, including Forrest Whitaker, have to go to try to bring him back. But goddammit, they get swept up in the action, and they're cheering for him as well and of course the hot blonde uh, reporter falls madly in love with him because of course she does why wouldn't she how could she not you know he makes the friend with uh, the tough american who's defeated by bolo young and then it sets up the baby face versus heel confrontation it is pro wrestling as cinema at its finest but holy shit what a thing to try to say with a straight face is a true story it is like a little bit of this, a little bit of that, like a, a combination, a tapestry of so many of the greatest, like iconic stories. There's a little bit of everything from Karate Kid to the Princess Bride with the lovable big wrestler, that, and then he gets drugged and he gets his performance inhibited, and he still comes out on top and gets the girl. And there's a, you know, a magic like Oriental shaman guy, and then there's like, 
But yes, Forrest Whitaker is like chasing him on boats. It's amazing. They're like, they're basically like doing this like Ninja Warrior course and he has to like escape. The guy who cut the bottle in um, uh, uh, Big Trouble in Little China shows up. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just so much weird shit. And then so soon after that, uh, Dukes published his book, The Secret Man, which is filled with implausible stories of being recruited by the CIA, literally at a urinal in a public bathroom, leading secret missions to Vietnam, strangely years after the war was over, winning, in his words, not being awarded, the Medal of Honor and a Purple Heart, and being the knife and unarmed combat instructor for Marines. This was during the period when Rambo and various Chuck Norris movies catapulted Vietnam-era Special Forces veterans into pop culture, and companies like Paladin Press would publish the stories of every goofball who claimed to be a Navy SEAL with unnatural skills and impossible stories that read more like pulp adventure stories in a 1930s men's magazine. Well, I, for one, have used the CIA recruitment line at the urinal many times, to great success. So I think that that part might be probable, old chap. And this is something I love with stories like this is when liars always reach for the top shelf. You know, they never are like, oh, yeah, I was just like the toughest guy at like the barracks and like Fort whatever in Idaho. It's always like I was the guy who taught the Navy SEALs how to, you know, fight a hundred bears at once to defeat. And I led this mission, even though I really wasn't like a member of the team, they knew I was so fucking good. They let me lead the team to, you know, assassinate this target. It's like, what are you doing? It's like when, you know, martial arts guys, you know, like, especially back in the day, they, they would never, like if there was like, oh yeah, I, ha- I fought, like I, I remember one time this, a uh, local wrestler, and this is one of the reasons I stopped talking to him. He, I asked him if he wanted to come to it with a bunch of us to watch a UFC. He's like, oh, I've kind of been there, done that. You know, I had a, in his words, a dark match at, on a UFC as though like share dog fight finder doesn't exist. So once again, they reach for the top shelf because nobody ever does you know, knows what it was like, especially like in the late nineties, nobody's like, yeah, man, like telling a bullshit story to impress somebody with like, yeah, man, we went to, it was at a weightlifting gym. And what they did is they put a bunch of fucking uh, mats down in the aerobics room because the owner, for some reason, saw UFC and probably watched Lionheart did too much cocaine and asked if like some people wanted to fight for $200 each. And I double legged and beat the shit out of a karate guy. And I felt really bad about it for weeks. Like nobody has tells the lie like that because that story is weird and makes it all look bad as it was back in those days. And also because that's how it actually happens when you do get in those weird situations like that. But someone who's making that shit up has no idea how those things actually show up when the fight promoter that needs a fighter at the 11th hour because the guy blew his ACL out cutting weight and he he pulls up to your work and he's like, hey kid, want to make 500 bucks? That shit happens. And then you usually get the shit kicked out of you, you know, but those things are real, but it's the level of, yeah, like taking it to 11 with the bullshit is just, it's a, it's a thing of beauty, man. And along with his Kumite stories, his military stories fall apart under any criticism. Vietnam was over before he graduated high school. He was briefly a Marine stateside and was discharged after falling off a truck he was painting. His record shows no special 
training, no medals, no crazy action-packed adventures. And while some can try to claim that there are secret missions and clandestine special forces teams, there are no such things as secret records, which have been published under Freedom of Information Act requests. And he has distanced himself from some of those stories, claiming he never said he was a vet or a spy, then later saying it was so secret that it can never be printed or on his record, and he was secretly given the Medal of Honor, and has even claimed to use a body double while on missions, and the body double being interviewed is why his stories are peppered with contradictions and nonsense. Wait, he got the secret Medal of Honor, and then he told people... That he it, got it, the it seemed Medal like of a, Honor? it seemed like a faux pas. Yeah, I, th- I, mean, I thought that was the first rule of Secret Medal of Honor Club is you don't talk about Secret Medal of Honor Club. Yeah, I mean, imagine like being dug so deep into the bullshit that you have to say I use a body double and they're the one who told you that. <laughs> Dude, that's a great gimmick. Pro wrestling, ladies and gentlemen. And also, like I said, we can say maybe things are a secret, maybe whatever, but the CIA went out of their way to say he never worked there, and the FBI recommended he be prosecuted for some of his claims, because it's essentially stolen valor at a certain point. But he is stuck by his martial arts claims and has doubled down on demonstrations like breaking bulletproof glass with a strike, such a carny thing. It's like, I have some bulletproof glass and I'm going to uh, break it with a punch. Can we have an expert look at it? How dare you doubt me? This yeah, is my right. presentation. And then he like breaks it, but it breaks in a way that like bulletproof glass would never break. So it's just one of those things with all the like, you know, once again, it's gimmicks, it's carnival tricks, get fleecing people out of their money. It's pro wrestling like anything else we have talked about. Um, and people for the most part, loved the movie, but the media started picking it apart almost immediately, including the May 1988 Los Angeles Times feature Ninja, Hero or Fake Master, which dismissed his tale as utter macho nonsense. But this is the 80s. This is when uh, cocaine and craziness are king. You know, there are so many people, like, especially with the burgeoning L.A. scene, television, you know, like kind of proto TMZ, where any maniac could show up with a crazy story, a bit of charisma, make a movie star friend. Next thing you know, you're kind of a quasi celebrity. And now you're able to reinvent yourself as whoever the fuck you want to be. And, you know, sometimes it works temporarily. um, And then it, of course, falls apart as soon as, you know, you get a little too deep. If you ever want to see a Rita truly uh, great bit of, uh, of, of collapse, Steven Seagal under oath being asked about his many claims of what his life were is absolutely fascinating. It is a meltdown beyond words, but that's a whole different thing. People were allowed to be who they wanted to be, who they pretended to be. The bullshit was hard to uh, verify, so people just fucking ran with it. But here's the problem, is when we start looking at what the Kumite is, how he'd sold his story, all the martial arts things in this, especially today with knowing what we know about fighting, knowing what we know because we can verify things with the internet, the level of bullshit layered in this makes it make no goddamn sense. And I love that. You know, he claimed that Zenzo Tiger Tanaka was a master ninja from 40 generations of warriors who took him to Japan to be indoctrinated into ninja society. When confronted with the fact that there is no evidence Tanaka existed and no evidence in the paper or in the records that he died at the time they say he died, Dukes claimed he was living under a fake name in America. <laughs> of course. I mean, we're talking about a ninja master. You're not just going to look him up in your DMV 
database. <sighs> These amateurs. And then you have to think about how this was a secret tournament, but it was a secret tournament with lots of competitors and audience members. And clearly there were flights and, uh, you know, hotels that had to be booked. I don't know if there were merch tables. I wasn't there, but this would have passports had to be involved because they're going to various other countries in the eighties. And literally not one person has come forth with a credible backup to this. You know, like there's the saying, you know, the only way to keep a secret between three people is for one to kill the other two. Like, you know, this is why I always laugh when people are like trying to pull all these like weird conspiracies with the government. And it's like, you know how many people would have to be involved in that? Yeah. Like anytime the government has like tried to pull anything or like these secret side, like any sort, any sort of conspiracy theory that has a grain of truth, they bumble butted it out of the gate because people will always talk. The only person who ever came forward to back it up and say they also fought for the Kumite turned out to be, I believe it was one of his students who then recanted his tale saying, yeah, I just wanted to help him look good. Well, I mean, but we must, we must consider the fact that everyone else in the tournament was killed in the fights to the death, except the winner. So he would be the only one that would be there to talk about it, except for, you know, all the gangsters that were there betting on the action. Yeah, and then they say it's like the triads are running it, it's like these, these criminal underworld. Who the fuck in the criminal underworld is gonna be like, especially in Asia or someplace like that where it's, you know, a very closed, very, you know, in-group type of thing where they're certainly not going to be like, oh, an, 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 a 24-year-old American? Yeah, yeah, bring him in and tell him everything. He seems like he seems like he's going to, you know, work out just fine. That shit is not going to fucking happen. And then you'll have things like the trophy that he claimed to have won uh, from the Kumite, and he shows it off in his karate school. Meanwhile, once the story came out, turns out the trophy maker down the street had the receipt showing that he made it for Frank Dukes. You know, you shot off the prop. He just didn't do his due diligence. Well, maybe, you know, maybe it was the stunt trophy double, you know, that his stunt double had to carry around, you know. He also claimed he was presented with a valuable katana as a as like a, a, a token of esteem for having won the tournament. When asked where the katana was, uh, he claimed that as part of a secret government operation, he had to sell it to rescue a bunch of orphans from pirates in Southeast Asia. Well, that's the only acceptable reason to not have your your ceremonial awarded katana from your tournament victory. I honestly wish I could pay him to write me a list of excuses for why I'm late to work. <laughs> yes, Frank Dukes comes up with where you put your keys. And then we have to look at those claims from the credits that we talked about, where he claims that from 1975 to 1980, he fought 329 matches, claiming that tournaments would make you fight 10 to 20 times a day. We have both been in fights both in the ring, both out of the ring, both with gloves, both without gloves. There's a reason why the UFC stopped doing tournaments even after the bare knuckle era, fighting fucks you up. You know, this isn't, but these are guys who were doing point, you know, no punch to the face, very little contact karate, maybe a couple sidekicks to the uh, the old torso. But, you know, when they try, try to tell these stories of these like drag down, fight to the finish, bare knuckle fights, it's like, motherfucker, they couldn't even put together four fights at the UFC without people dropping off from injuries. He said that they would fight 10 times in the morning and 10 times in the evening and have a nice break in the middle where the doctors would look at them. You know how fucking wrecked your body would be even halfway through the morning? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, like 10 sparring rounds, one round with 10 different opponents, and you are completely wrecked. That's called a shark tank. Now, as far as a single-day tournament goes, I think the most times I've ever competed in any individual martial art is probably seven or eight matches in a single day. And that's with limited rules, jujitsu, or maybe like amateur high school or college wrestling, but definitely not full contact, definitely not till somebody can't go anymore because the level of damage, I fought one time in Mexico, I fought three fights in one night. And that was in 2005, pride was still a thing. It was not quite to the sanction point that we think of now that is, we think of it retroactively as like the old hat, it's always been that way, but like pre-Ultimate Fighter coming out, you could still get into some pretty crazy martial arts competitions around the world before it got kind of unified and sanctioned to the degree it is. And let me tell you something, three fights in one night will destroy your body for the rest of your life. Like, like I, you know, I can't even imagine being able to continue after that. Yeah, I had uh, one time it was and it was after a seminar. Uh, they was kind of like, hey, who wants to uh, have some spots at a tournament the next day? And, you know, and I'm 18, the height of your testosterone replacing yeah. your, your muscle. You know, you're like you are you are almost indestructible. You are as close to the Energizer Bunny as you will be in your lifetime. So you have good recovery time. And it was um, shoot fighting rules like ISFA where very similar to pancreas, kicks, knees to the body, but open hand to the face, yeah. uh, rope breaks for when you're grappling, no real strikes to the face on the ground. I guess it was kind of close to rings if for, you know, the okay. old MMA dorks. And at 18, it was a, uh, a you know, it was a, it was a three bracket, uh, or I'm sorry, uh, you know, three rounds. You had your, you know, quarter, semis, and finals. And they were all about, you know, just 10 minute, uh, 10 minute single rounds. Um, I, I lost in the final and I could not get out of fucking bed the next day. It was like I had the worst flu imaginable. My body simply didn't respond because I fought for half an hour hard. And that still, once again, is not a bare knuckle, everything goes type of fight. Fighting fucks you up. That's why, you know, like once again, you go back to the UFC, they shortened the, uh, you know, it back to a three round tournament after uh, the, the second one when they just had too many, too many fighters, too much risk of injury. Then they soon broke it down to just a two round tournament. And then they got rid of it because you would have like the Steve Jedham situation where an alternate would have to come in sometimes in the finals as a fresh fighter and win because people fuck their bodies up fighting. Fighting is not good for you and we are dumb for doing it. Such is life. But yeah, the and also we have to think about the record he's claiming where he fought 329 matches undefeated. The amount of fights that is, I mean, even like the MMA guys, like we'll leave, even in boxing, any combat sport where you have the guys who have those incredible records, whether it's a Mayweather or like a, you know, a Jeremy Horn, like a lot of totally, those, a lot of those yeah. Militech fighters where they had these huge hundred uh, plus fights. Yeah. Fights. But then you look at the details and 75% of those happen once again, in like in a barn somewhere against a a karate guy whose primary job is moving furniture. Not a not not a furniture mover from Omaha who doesn't know how to wrestle. I'll take a challenge, mister. Just mismatches. You know, use car salesmen who box on the weekends getting a title fight for reasons unknown. You really have to pad your fucking record. And that is an insane number when he's trying to claim bare knuckle, everything goes. No fucking way, dude. Calling bullshit on that. Yeah. I mean, Calling pro wrestling on that. Yeah, exactly. That is a pro wrestling work rate schedule. You have that many matches over a five-year period, you are a fairly successful indie guy. It, it made me think about, remember when uh, they were trying to build the Goldberg streak, but it's like, 
his numbers jumped every fucking yeah, week without yeah, actually totally. having matches, so it made no goddamn yeah, it sense. Like, it, it, even if they had a show every day since the last time that I saw the streak, it wasn't enough days that you added the matches. Like he, it was four days ago, and you've added fourteen wins to his record. It was so ridiculous. And then claiming things like fastest knockout, three point two seconds. If you really like one of the fastest ones I've ever seen was uh, um, it was Dwayne Ludwig knocked a guy out at a UFC fight night where he just kind of the guy came in through a lazy jab. Uh, he just kind of sidestepped uh, pivot, boom, crossed to the thing. Yeah. And that was still like eight or nine seconds trying to claim that you're going to like cover that much ground, not feel things out and knock somebody out in three seconds. Cool story, bro. Same thing. Uh, fastest punch with a knockout. Forty two seconds. Fastest kick with a knockout. This is what I love. This one always gets me. 72 miles per hour. Who the fuck was sitting there with a radar gun? Dude, you don't know <laughs> that all secret underground martial arts society tournaments to the death have a official MLB speedometer gun to see what those heaters are throwing. He also claimed to have won the Forms Championship. What underground criminal fight club has a forums competition. Like I want to see the triads like changing money and like the bookie yelling through <laughs> that money trading hands over who has the prettiest Prince of the Panther form. I mean, it's, it's just one of those things where you can't get away with that now. And now we get to the whopper, the biggest lie, the greatest story. Math is not always our friends when we are talking bullshit. And that is, is his story of in a single tournament, knocking out 56 people in a row. And we're going to operate on the assumption that that was 56. There were only 56 matches. So that meant he had in a single elimination bracket, there was 56 Rounds. Le like rounds in yeah, this tournament. Oh it's 56 so, levels of the tournament. So you think about it, two rounds starts with, that would be four people. Uh, three rounds would be eight. Four would be 16. Things progress by doubling yeah. numbers. And by the time you get to 56 rounds, that means that 27 quadrillion people would have been competing in this tournament, which I think is still more people that have ever been born on planet Earth since humans evolved. <laughs> oh my God, I didn't realize it was that many. That's amazing, he killed the Earth. Yeah, I, I, I tried doing like the math myself and I was getting to the point where I'm like, this somebody has to have done this before. So I Googled it, I'm yes. like, oh Jesus Christ, that is, that is insane. So he was claiming there was a tournament that had 56 single elimination matches that would have been the population of every alternate dimension Earth there is. There was the, you know, the 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 karate guys from Earth 52. They are just like us. They wear cowboy hats. Where where do you like you said, it's like math is not your friend sometimes when you're talking too much shit and you're a little too high on your own fucking story. And this is kind of around the time, and I feel like it was very much connected to this movie, is the rise of exotic martial arts VHSs, the deadly arts that can't be challenged, and everyone claiming they taught the Navy SEALs how to fight. These were, this was like, I feel like is what led to a lot of that, you know, those ads at the back of Black Belt, where it's like, you know, well, my name's Gary Bob Joseph, and I am the master of leg locks. Uh, that really came after the UFC. But it was like, you know, you'd look at those, those catalogs where it's like, 
for $300, you can get your, you know, Eagle style Kung Fu uh, set, or this guy's claiming to be the knife instructor for the Green Berets, or this is the guy who's teaching you basic boxing, but claiming to be the, you know, the combat instructor for the Navy SEALs. Because once again, people were not scrutinizing and criticizing this the way we would now, because now it's like, I was a Navy SEAL and I did all these things. Hold on, let me just Google that. Yeah, you're a fucking liar, get out of here. Yeah, totally. And, but here's the thing. I was a mark for it. I fell for it because I'm watching movies like Bloodsport. I'm watching Kickboxer. I'm watching Snake and Crane style of Shaolin. We didn't have the UFC. We didn't know like what things were. So we still had that idea that these crazy exotic arts weren't actually the most deadly. And we would watch Bloodsport and see the guy doing the five animal style. It'd be like, holy shit, how do I learn that? Well, some guy made a video set and for $500, you can learn in your living room. You can get the correspondence course. Yeah, I mean, it was, one, we wanted to believe. Two, there was no way to disprove that it wasn't true. And three, it was fucking awesome. Doing Mantis Kung Fu when I was a little kid and ordering nunchucks. And the, I had, a, I had a, a book that I bought, one of the first ones I bought out of Black Belt Magazine was like, I don't remember how many, but it was like a bunch of different ways, like 25 different ways to throw a ninja star. And it was like how to throw a shuriken with the straight point. And it was just like, that was so cool as a kid. I really thought I was training to be a real ninja. Oh yeah, I was in the same boat because every mall in America had that like sharper image style store where you could go and they would they would have katanas and cool knives and you know, the, the fucking uh, Filipino style rattan sticks and they would have an Indonesian Chris knife, like all those exotic things that you would see in Black Belt Magazine that you would see in a Cynthia Rothrock movie on Showtime at 2 a.m. And it was still so exotic and so exciting that you couldn't help but buy into it because there was no evidence against it. It was the cultural zeitgeist. It was Hulkamania. Ninja mania was the same as Hulkamania. It was just everybody getting so excited about something that we didn't look at critically and therefore we assumed it was real because there was no counter-programming to say otherwise. We were just thinking, you know, Enter the Ninja was the best movie. I remember getting like the claw hands to try to climb a tree. Totally. All they did was like hurt your knuckles oh, yeah. and fall out. Definitely break your, break your hands and your feet if you ever try to climb with the cat claws with the metal brackets. Very, very non-form fitting. Those things were terrible. Or one of my finest purchases back in those days was Robert Busey's Warrior International Ninjutsu series on VHS. And it was like six tapes, everything from how to turn a long sleeve black t-shirt into a ninja mask to how to disappear in the shadows by crouching down and putting your head in your lap or these like super aggressive, like run at them like a fucking crazy person growling like an animal with the assumption they're just gonna stand there looking dumb so you can do like some sort of weird dumb leg sweep and then grab their arm and punch them in the neck or whatever. And they would have like, oh, and here's where you build your, your training course with, which was like essentially a jungle gym. It looked like a lot of fun, but I'm a fucking dumb kid. I buy into this. I think it's fucking awesome. It influences how I play laser tag at my friend's farm by sneaking around. You buy into it so wholeheartedly. And then I remembered those tapes years later, the second Ultimate Fighting Championship, somebody from that organization, Scott Morris, uh, he did the same thing you see in the videotapes during the preliminary match. He just sprints at the guy, ends up with the guy in a front headlock slash guillotine, rolls back, sacrifice, throw, chokes the guy out. 
Second fight runs into Pat Smith, who picks him off with a front kick, ends up on mount and beats the guy to a bloody stupor, showing just how effective some of this goofball shit is when it actually meets somebody who's in the ring actually doing it constantly. Yeah, and it's it's really hard even at that age because we don't know the difference that this first round opponent is a Hammenager and then he runs into somebody that's legit. When he landed that sacrifice guillotine, it's like, oh, the training is true. And then when he got caught, it just, it was so, it was magic. Martial arts had a magical element to it because it, the kayfabe component of it could not be broken. Again, pre-UFC, pre-internet, there was no baseline to fact check against the bullshit of martial arts. So it gave that extra layer of credibility and sort of mystic, un, there's this unknowable level of Kung Fu where you can take it to. And it, dude, I was all about it as a kid and I wouldn't be the idiot I am today if I didn't believe in that shit as a child, you know? And we keep comparing it to pro wrestling, but there is that philosophical overlap, but there's also a philosophical difference when we get it into practice. Creating a bullshit backstory to create a bullshit persona to present yourself as a great fighter without winning a real fight. How is lying about the Kumite any different than claiming Pat Patterson won the Intercontinental Championship in a Brazilian tournament? The difference is, aside from fans arguing online and being dicks about it, nobody's life in the real world is generally affected by these lies. BS martial artists are selling a system of fighting, philosophy, and living to a gullible public. That can ultimately get the, them killed. So while we often say, never let the truth get in the way of a good story, it's important to know the realities of a fight so you don't end up as somebody else's good story. Yeah, and speaking of a good story, go find and treat yourself down the, ver the visual rabbit hole of fake martial arts sensei exposed, you know, that kind of thing. And you're going to see what we're talking about when an actual martial artist confronts one of these, you know, snake oil salesmen. And it's it's glorious, man. And we used to see that a lot, especially back in the early days of mixed martial arts, because you would have, I remember here in town, uh, there was a group that was doing Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. They were doing the correspondence grappling course from the Torrance Academy. And there was this kid who was 16 and he showed up at a well-established Taekwondo Academy and beat the shit out of the owner teacher's son in front of the entire class. And I don't condone that type of thing, but I do think it's kind of funny in some ways because there are people, and they have been for decades, and some of them are still out there, teaching people how to fight in ways that they can never win a fight. So when they get exposed as the frauds that they are, and a lot of times they honestly don't know they're frauds. They come from generations of frauds. They were taught by a fraud and convinced by a fraud who in turn was convinced by a, a con artist himself. So it's like the reality of that hits the fucking uh, pavement, just like the fist hits their face. And sometimes that means the, it's the end of the road for them. Now everybody watch them get their ass kicked. They are exposed and hopefully everybody learns a lesson and grows from things, but that's not really how people work, unfortunately. But it is, it has become a kind of natural sort of uh, a checks and balance system. Now that we do have, the understanding of what a true no holds barred fight looks like now that we do have the internet 
all of these fake martial arts are getting much more exposed and they're a lot less prevalent than there were. There's still a lot of McDojos out there because there is a component of training for fitness and family fun and not necessarily for competition and for the intrinsic benefits of martial arts as a whole outside of actually fighting. But for the most part, we are more educated now as to what is a real martial art and what is bullshit And that whole thing would continue even well into the UFC era. And even legit fighters would pad their resumes and stories of fight records for years to come, still talking about how, you know, back in Brazil, they beat 900 people. People who were legitimate badasses, great fighters, were still padding the story to kind of take things to the next level as far as how tough they sounded. Everyone could be insecure no matter how tough you are, but that's going to be a topic for another story because we'll start talking about that in our next episode where we will look at the origins and impact of the first UFC. And that's really going to be when real fighting becomes pro wrestling. And if you're wondering what that means, well, you're going to be listening to that in two weeks. And that's what we've got for you today. So before we call it quits, I just want to thank you for listening, not just to this one, but to all our episodes. Hopefully you've enjoyed this journey with us. Please you know, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, see what we're doing on Instagram. If you like old timey photos, we've got a lot of them for you. So thank you so much once again for Chongo Bronson. I'm Nick Gossard. Good night, everybody. Cut print martini. <laughs>